0: Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist and a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this
2: is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, Highland Games athlete, powerlifter, and uh, run Strength
0: Guild, Lift for Hope, and USSF. Awesome. And today with us, we have William Llewellyn. Um, Bill, can you just tell listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: Um, well, I'm the author of the uh, Anabolics uh, Reference Guide. Uh, Anabolic's le- latest edition was the uh, 10th, and the CEO of Molecular Nutrition, sports nutrition uh, research and development company.
0: All right. Well, everybody, we've got oh, Bill with us today for um, multiple reasons. Uh, he has patents and uh, done a lot of uh, literature research into fatty acids and muscle growth, and we're going to talk about that in the topic of the day. We'll probably also touch on his expertise uh, with anabolic steroids. Um, First, a bit of geeky news. Strength and muscle sport news. Um, I was turned onto a website recently from my gym owner, Pep Wall, uh, called ergo-log.com. I don't know if either of you guys have heard about this, but ergo-log.com. I don't think it's a U.S. website. Uh, I just started looking at it, but it's fascinating. There's uh, literature reviews, and they. They do a lot of what we do here on Iron Radio, which is sort of spin it for the lifter consumer. Um, but the guy will literally take a lot of the graphs and quotes right out of studies. And I think he's trying to do a good job, you know, posting the, the source and all that. But this particular one says daily 1500 milligrams of arachidonic acid makes strength athletes stronger and bulkier. And then again, try to bite your tongue, Bill, <laughs> because I know this is you know about this stuff. Uh, It says, this is what they say. Take any bodybuilder from a gym and give him a bottle of capsules containing arachidonic acid. Get him to take 1,500 milligrams a day of this fatty acid and ask him to come back after two months. Fair chance is he'll have gained 1.5 kilograms of muscle mass. So then they go on to a little um, mini review of arachidonic acid, basically saying it's an omega-6 fatty acid that the body makes from the the common linoleic acid, um, which is in all kinds of common vegetable oils. And how that's a precursor for things like prostaglandin E2. And I know some people say, well, Lowry, don't start going off the deep end. And I'm going to warn Bill not to do this too later, I think. But um, P- prostaglandin E2, for example, is linked to inflammation. It's one of the reasons people take aspirin, you know, to prevent too much of this. But it also has connections with muscle growth. And that's where things start to get sticky with fish oils and inflammation and arachidonic and, uh, acid and all this sort of thing. And then they go on to mention you uh, – Uh, Bill, it says William Llewellyn came up with a theory years ago that arachidonic acid supplementation could help strength athletes develop muscle mass. He filed a patent, et cetera, launched arachidonic acid as a sports supplement. So this particular study that they're talking about here on Ergolog.com says researchers from the University of Tampa, they uh, just presented a poster at the annual National Strength Conditioning Association meeting in Las Vegas uh, 15 strength athletes, they took 1,500 milligrams daily for eight weeks. Uh, average age of the subjects was 20, uh, you know, typical college guy experiment, I think. Um, trained them three times a week, and those guys know what they're doing with training, so it probably wasn't, you know, wussy kinds of training. And then there's a couple of graphs on here, and I'll be honest, uh, I us- am usually a little bit wary about y-axis exaggeration, uh, and that's a little bit of what I see here. The y axis is so expanded that it makes small changes look very big. Now, these are statistically significant results, so I don't have a huge problem with it. It's just that we're talking about three pounds of gain, and I can tell you it's really hard. That's just about the threshold for detectability, I think. Eight weeks and three pounds. Um, regardless of what kind of body composition equipment you've got, you know. So sometimes I wonder, I mean, I don't doubt that this is statistically significant, but three pounds is, you know, will that continue after eight weeks? Maybe it would. Uh, Maybe it wouldn't. You know what I mean? But by itself, uh, the graph makes it look like a towering gain, whereas, you know, I I think it's something going on there. But uh, anyway, you'd have to to be cautious, I think, with some of the graphs. But then um, they show... Some other things, too. I think this is from an ultrasound kind of scan. It doesn't say in here, but it looks like they actually gained quadriceps thickness. Um, And that's something that we've been playing with in the lab a little bit lately ourselves. So uh, I think that's a very cool addition to some of those body comp, uh, you know, like a bod pod or even a DEXA scan. Uh, It's neat because you can look at specific body parts and did the muscle get thicker? And then something that I don't think is exaggerated at all is the graph on strength gains Apparently, there was a 110-kilogram gain um, between the leg press and the bench press over eight it was weeks. It actually in
3: pounds. Uh, so there was a little bit. Ergogenics um, – Ergolog is the English site, uh, the English translations for actually Ergogenics. They're based in uh, the Netherlands. Okay. So they put up all their stuff initially in Dutch, and then it's translated. So there's a couple of translation errors, like, for instance, the gain um, – it was actually uh, one point six two kilograms, which comes to like three point five seven pounds. So it was about a half a pound a week for eight weeks. Okay. About, okay. Right? okay. And again, one hundred and ten pounds. I
0: think, oh, okay. Strength. Yep. And but that was compared to only seventy six for the placebo group. You know, so as I look at that one, I am like, oh, okay. So when you see muscle thickness and strength changes, and it's not just the body comp stuff that, I, and again, I am not being wary of. Uh, necessarily arachidonic acid because that's not what i 'm thinking about i 'm thinking about the limitations of body comp equipment, you know what I mean but when you see when you also see the differences in uh in muscle thickness and in strength that's pretty suggestive that something's happening you know so anyway, that was a bit of the news that was from um jacob wilson's lab. I think the first author was Jacob Ormes or orms um Anyway, so interesting stuff. I have a real interest in dietary fats. Some of the listeners, if you listen back far enough, will know because I did my dissertation with uh, uncommon uh, fats. Um, in fact, it's actually hard to do research with fats sometimes because what do you use for a placebo group? Because almost all fats have some type of nutraceutical effect, you know. But anyway, that's the that's the science side of the news. Phil, is there anything going on on the?
2: The only thing I got is that's worth throwing out there I guess is there was a good article um an interview with Boris Shiko or Shiko uh if if people don't know who he is we've been talking about the Russians and how strong they are of late and uh he heads the Russian national powerlifting team um and they did a great interview with him and if you're wondering why they're stronger this gives a good outlook into it and they go into like the recruiting and and stuff like that and just how you know, they have a national university of physical culture mm. and mm-hmm. things like that, um, just stuff we don't have here. They're, they're pretty much given, he said, the powerlifting coaches go out and they gather children in between 10 and 13 years old, and that's when they start, and they pretty much own these kids. Uh, they get to, you know, they, they mandate everything from their training to their schooling to their free time to their everything. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's no wonder that uh, that's just not going to happen here you know, in this society, right. but, uh, you know, let alone having a school, you know, a, a university and then, you know, lower schooling levels, uh, that are just dedicated to sport, <clears throat> you know, we, we, we don't have that kind of system. So, I mean, I, I would argue it's more the system than, uh, you know, than the athletes themselves. If you gave me or, or any strength coach worth their their salt, you know, give me a kid at 10 years old and just let me own him. You know, yeah. and as dedicated as they are, I mean, you're talking kids that, hey, I'm either going to go to the school and train or and get a meal and it's somewhere good to sleep or I'm going to, you know, live in poverty. I mean, you've got a real, you know, there's there's a real chance for success there. So you know, our so. speculation
0: over the last few weeks sounds pretty spot on, actually. Yeah.
2: yeah. From what he says in here. And then, you know, they go into the drug testing and things like that. And I mean, he's he's, he's not open about it, but he's not you know lying it's like you know we kind of uh if they're not going to pass we don't lift them if they pass then we'll go lift
0: you know so right yeah uh type of thing but no that's interesting yeah i think Uh, it's fascinating to a lot of people about why right when you watch russians at the top of every list like you say lately and everybody's heard stories i think about the eastern Bloc athletes and being taken into a you know government slash political kind of machine at an early age and
2: Yeah. Well, and not only that, it's coaches. I mean, they have federally funded coaches over there that, you know, they're paid to make athletes by the, you know, the federal system. So we don't have that. You know, it's all at the, you know, independent level here. Right. then you're hoping you find a kid that's dedicated enough to stick to it um, and and not go to one of the big three sports, you know, which is, you know, there's the other thing. They're not competing against basketball and football and and things like that. Right. They've got the Olympic sports and then they've got the other strength sports. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting article though. It's, it's worth looking at. So, somebody posted it on our our Facebook page. So, if you want to go check it
0: out. Okay. Bill, when you were writing uh authoring the anabolic reference guide, uh did you rely on a lot of Eastern Bloc and European research for some of that? Um it just seems like more of that goes on over there.
3: Yeah, you know, it was very interesting with the uh the whole um, you know, behind the iron curtain doping programs they had decades back. Mm-hmm. Um Made a reference to it, I think, a couple of times, um, more for personal interest they were and this is going back quite some time. They were methodical about uh, testing different compounds and the responses from athletes and uh, trying to determine the uh, the effective you know most effective dosing programs and stuff uh, protocols but um, not deeply in the book, um, I think in general, our understanding of the science behind the c- compounds has changed a lot over. The, the years to follow. so um, even though I think they were really uh, detailed um, and really focused at the time, I think that uh, in many regards we know a lot more than we did did back then. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. All right, well let's let's get to you then, Bill. Uh, if you could share your origins uh, in the industry, I mean whether it's your interest in anabolic steroids or dietary fats or you know your own um, athletic background, uh, what's your story?
3: Um, nothing too amazing. Uh, I was a skinny kid back in New York, um, getting into weightlifting like a, a lot of uh, my peers. And, uh, you know, gain was very difficult for me. I was getting frustrated seeing a lot of people uh, making a lot of progress. And uh, so at some point or another, um, friends and, and myself started looking at uh, anabolic steroids. And I'm just one of those um OCD kind of people. When I really get a topic in my head, I want to really understand it. So I get a, a t- I tend to get obsessive with uh, with a particular subject at a time. And when I was looking at anabolic steroids, that was um, that was the subject for me. And I had uh, come across uh, Dan Duchesne's uh, Underground Steroid Handbook 2, which mm-hmm. presented a tremendously different view um, on the safety of these drugs than uh, than you were hearing in the media. And the whole subject just became fascinating to me. And uh, eventually I did go on to, to use anabolics, um, probably at a pretty young age. But um, but I continued to just uh, relentlessly research and study, um, study the, the topic. And at some point it came to where I was reading other books um, from other authors. And there was a lot of... Uh, great books out there, certainly, very useful, Um, but I would start to correct, I would start to find technical um, issues with um, their profiles about different drugs or what have you, so after I was sitting there reading the most popular book at the time, making a lot of corrections to myself, I said, you know, I've just got to put a book together, and I just locked myself in the house, spent months and months, in the house and in the medical libraries pulling research, and um, put out the first book in uh, 2000, and it just continued to grow from there.
0: Okay. Uh, well, you know, I wanted to wait, uh, but this is a, such a good time to ask you this. So, what do you think of Boston Lloyd on YouTube? I mean, he's sharing a lot of information about how to how to use and abuse anabolics in all different ways. Are you familiar with his videos? I mean, if you if you pick th- people apart, um, if you're familiar, what do you think of him?
3: You know, I haven't watched the videos, so I can't really uh, I can't really comment. It is I do get frustrated sometimes because they're I mean, there's a lot of scientific basis for a lot of what's said about uh, anabolic steroids. But, and I, I can't comment on this particular individual. I don't know what, what's being said. But there are a, a lot of people out there that are um, very aggressive and pushing these real high doses. And, um, you know, that's what I get frustrated about. You know, steroids are – back in my day when I was using anabolics. it was common to use, you know, say a moderate dose of, uh, you know, maybe 400 milligrams of an injectable, mm-hmm. maybe stack that with something – and that was a that was a strong cycle. You put your effort into the gym, and you got what you could get out of it. Um, and nowadays, that's all, that's almost laughed at by uh, by many of the, oh, yeah. you know, the steroid coaches. That's what you're doing for no. You need a gram of testosterone a minimum, and then you got to do this. And oh, you're going to do Anavar? Let's do uh, fifty, hundred milligrams. And the doses just are are so extreme to me, and um, that's where I, I I find a big issue. I think with a lot of what you find on the uh, on the internet is that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one side, you have the media telling you the steroids are super deadly drugs, which the acute risks are actually pretty low mm-hmm. in the short term. But then on the other side, you have people in the using community that believe that they're perfectly safe, period. There's no danger practically to them unless you do something really extreme, which is not really the case as we understand it. You know, there is some cardiovascular disease, strong cardiovascular disease risk probably with uh, overtime abuse, you know, long time abuse and, and other issues. and. You know, it should be in the middle, kind of like we're all looking at this like, OK, we understand these drugs. They're very strong. They have a very positive effect on muscle mass. But there are some risks, particularly with cardiovascular disease um, that we believe from the changes in, uh, in health markers. You know, and, and we want to look at this as a risk versus reward kind of if you're going to use them. And that's the point of my book has always been giving people the information or if they're going to use them, they they make smart decisions about them. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And
3: that's what I'd like to see more of is that middle ground where we, you know, we we definitely acknowledge the risks and we, you know, we try to mitigate them as opposed to ignoring
0: them. Yeah, there was a time for me as well in late undergrad and early grad school where I kind of discovered, oh, you know, peer-reviewed literature. There's all these journals and you can actually look up a lot of this stuff. And a lot of this stuff was European uh, papers, you know, but yeah, it did it did reveal a very different, and again, this isn't an athlete exaggerating how benign anything is, but the science just did not look as scary as what the media was saying, frankly. Um, Even things like the HDL suppression, you know, good cholesterol reduction, it tended to bounce back if people cycled on and off. And, you know, a lot of the things that the media would say, in fact, I got to the point where I had a stack of journals uh, just on the effects and the side effects and it was almost as as high as my knees, you know, when I set it on the ground. It was enormous, and um, I'd get in discussions with other students and just ask them where their opinions on anabolic steroids came from, and, and you know, they had very strong opinions. First, I'd say, you know, what's your thoughts? Oh, it's so bad. They're so dangerous, and and then they can't even tell me the source of their information. You know what I mean? It, either is media or word of mouth. And I'm like, well, this is where I'm getting my information. And I would slam down this giant stack of papers you know and i'm like i'm i'm having second thoughts about some of this stuff that you know how devastatingly dangerous these are you know i started to come to the conclusion as a class of drugs like you said maybe not as horrific as you know the media had made them out to be um but in any case uh, that was i sort of got more and more to nutrition over time instead of just the the pharmacy side of things but yeah I can definitely see where you're coming from with that, so before we go to break, maybe just real quickly then um so you started a company, and obviously you're you're going in more the nutritional direction. Maybe just tell listeners about that a bit.
3: well, when I started originally um I had uh, published my book the first edition through another uh, company, and at the same time, this pro hormone uh, error in sports nutrition was out and Uh, and really going strong, and it was just a perfect time for me because I understood um, structurally these compounds so well. Um, I was quickly able to identify compounds that I thought were natural. That was a big thing back then. Some companies afterwards didn't care, but um, we wanted to prove that these substances were natural, Um, so I would uh, quickly identified some that I I targeted. I said, these are probably going to be natural if I could find them um, and dug for them, and so we started with pro-hormones and um, really strong for the first few years before, of course, that uh, the ban came into effect in two thousand five. So that's uh, where the company started, and afterwards, subsequently, my research into fatty acids and uh, and ARA and, and I opened a whole new chapter.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Let's go to break a little bit, and then um, we've got some questions here. Phil and Bill and I are going to discuss uh, both fats for muscle growth, and uh, we're going to touch on the anabolic steroid issue a bit more. Uh, because we've got someone who's very learned on both of these things. So we'll be right back. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press and Protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with VitalBook, uh, you can actually download the ebook for sixty-nine US dollars. So that's thirty-one percent off the ninety-nine ninety-five uh cover price. So That's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it Uh, lower down the page. They have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So, thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob... I just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So – Okay, everyone. we are back. It's Phil and Lonnie, and we've got William Llewellyn, who's a dietary fat and anabolic steroid expert with us, and we're gonna pick his brain about those two things um uh, I mentioned earlier um when speaking with Bill that I had done my dissertation on different dietary fats, and I really started to appreciate the nutraceutical effects of them uh you know at the time uh in the mm early 90s and really throughout and even before the 90s and the 80s a lot of the research was on carbs you know everything was carbohydrates for endurance athletes you know and I was the rare example of I didn't care about how well I would run a 5k I don't think I could run a 10k or certainly couldn't run a half marathon and so I was interested in fats and proteins and resistance exercise and I worked with Peter Lemon and and that sort of thing and um, so during that time though Most of the literature, both um, in my pharmacy books, my endocrinology books, and my nutrition books, and a lot of the original uh, studies that I looked at, it suggested that um, omega six fats are grossly overconsumed and they lead to inflammation and they're actually bad. Um, So I've got a couple of questions here uh, because I'm eager to learn about this as well of some of the changing thinking about arachidonic acid, which is, you know, it comes from some of these common fats, and about why this is, uh, you know, good, for lack of a better word, as opposed to bad, which is what I always thought. So my first question to you, Bill, is, I mean, if we want more arachidonic acid uh, in our cell membranes and in our muscle cells, um, can't we just eat a lot of common omega-6 fats like corn oil,
3: Nope. Okay. Even uh, six-fold increase of the regular Western diet, which is very rich in uh, omega-6, mm-hmm. uh, linoleic acid, the main precursor, um, do not increase um, membrane concentrations of arachidonic acid. It's a relationship that's very similar to alpha-linolenic acid and uh, you know, the downstream active um, omega-3s, EPA, and DHA.
0: Sure.
3: They're very weak precursors. In the case of ARA, we're talking less than 1%. So okay. with omega-3s, we're, we're telling people, look, if you want to increase your concentration of EPA and DHA, um, take those directly. That's the most efficient way to do it. Don't rely on your body's enzymes and capacity to convert, you know, at very low percentages, your precursor omegas. Um, and, again, same thing with that. Okay. And when it comes to the inflammatory response, you know, that was supposition for years based on the fact that we know ARA converts to... Um, pro-inflammatory compounds, but Mm -hmm. um, one of the first things we've seen with, um, you know, studies that look at dietary intakes and supplementation with both uh, LA and ARA is no increase in resting inflammatory markers, and it's been studied time and time and time again. Um, So the model that we're developing now... And also, ARA converts to uh, some strongly anti-inflammatory compounds. It's more correct to look at it as a, as a mediator of uh, the inflammatory response as opposed to just pro-inflammatory. Um, so that's the model that, that we're developing now is that um, dietary substrate doesn't dictate um, how the inflammatory response goes in our body uh, unless the, our body is no longer able to control that with you know, severe, you know, some kind of inflammatory disease. It's controlled by the need for inflammation, which is a very targeted, localized response.
0: Right. You know, th- this reminds me a lot of uh, the change in thinking from about 10 years ago about free radicals. You know, originally everybody was popping antioxidants and trying to prevent free radicals. And even though, you know, there's, there's a role for those things. So like you said, maybe it's better to think about like whether it's antioxidants and free radicals or whether it's different um, fatty acids and inflammation it's better to look at these things as systems that need controlled, and it's not as simple as just eating the building blocks, right?
3: Exactly. You know, but but on that side, of course, if somebody has inflammatory disease going on in their body, if there's active inflammation, then feeding more substrate could provide more substrate for for inflammation. But generally speaking, you know, in healthy people, this is well controlled. You know, we don't go out and eat a bunch of eggs and steak, and then. Um, you know, get an inflammatory response. You know, the body the body manages it. It uses the substrate when it needs it. And it, it actually likes to store it in all these cells, including the muscle, because it's a very localized response. So um, when you have that injury to your muscle, it relies on your local substrate stores to, uh, to kick off the, the healing response. And that's the other thing that we forget about inflammation is it, it's healing. It's how your body protects itself, prepares itself. So uh, inflammation isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's inflammatory disease and and your body no longer managing inflammation
0: right in fact i mentioned my dissertation i ran people downhill and i created sort of an ethical form of injury uh and then i fed uh conjugated linoleic acid and i was looking at what um you know markers of muscle atrophy and inflammation and you know interleukins and different things like that and uh no i hear you maybe we should back up just a little bit uh just to bring listeners up to speed I'm going to run down real simple stuff, and obviously, Bill, throw in um, any thinking or Phil as well. But So the idea is, it, I think people get confused. Let me back up even further. I think people get confused because sometimes they'll see supplements that are just omega-3. Sometimes they'll see, no, you need omega-3 and 6, or you need a supplement omega-3, 6, and 9. Um, and I think there's a lot of confusion about that. So Omega-6 fats, linoleic acid is the key omega-6 fatty acid. It's very common, and we're eating more and more of it in the Western world. I've got some interesting data from the U.S. and Britain and Australia. Um, And the World Health Organization says we're eating, um, instead of something like a 4-to-1 ratio or a 7-to-1 ratio, and it depends on the studies you read, of omega-6 fats to omega-3 fats, we're eating like 17-to-1. We're we're so heavy on the omega-6 and I think maybe that's part of the reason some of that epidemiological, that population-based data, um, that might have fed into what you're saying, Bill, about we've just a supposition that we've got all these pro-inflammatory diseases, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, and we're eating all of this omega-6 fat. That must be to blame, I suppose, as opposed to your body's enzyme systems and whatnot and deciding what to do with that omega-6, I guess. Omega-3 fats are generally less common. Um, you've got the biologically uh, weaker uh, linolenic acid, A-L-A, alpha-linolenic acid. Uh, And that's in like walnuts and flax seeds. And the idea is whether you consume that or you consume uh, the more potent EPA and DHA from fish oils, those are the active ingredients in fish oils, you would end up uh, with less inflammation and even less body fat and that kind of thing. Um, So
3: that's Very, I think that's been held up in the literature. Um, You can reduce um, inflammatory markers and have health benefits with uh, taking fish oil, but that doesn't necessarily mean the opposite is true. You know, it goes the other way around. So,
0: okay. So, and
3: we do, uh, and uh, another thing to to comment on we do, if presumably, eat too much uh, omega 6 in the Western diet um, a lot, and some of the um, oxidized metabolites of, uh, you know, linoleic acid are not necessarily uh, healthy for you and may be contributing to some of the health effects as well. Um, but again, I think this is a situation where we need to separate the, uh, the, the, the top of the, uh, chain, uh, omega-6, which we're eating tons of, um, and the active ARA right, which we're eating actually about, you know, somewhere between 130, I think and 300 milligrams a day is all we get into that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So when, when somebody eats too much, um, vegetable oils, you know, the common oils, cottonseed oil, um, you know, safflower oil, corn oil. Um, there's a lot of omega six in there, a lot of that linoleic acid. But you're saying that could become some bad things. It's not. It's not bad, like you said. There seemed to be a supposition from a lot of people that that became arachidonic acid and that was the problem. But that's. Not, it's more complicated than that, is what you're saying. That those common fats can become lots of things, and arachidonic acid is not one of the bad guys.
3: Yep, and what actually makes the this picture totally different now is the new data that we're finding on ARA. The model that we seem to be developing now is that we have these very active fats on the three and six side, EPA, DHA, and ARA on the on, on three and six side, and ARA on the six side. And it's actually more, we want these three fatty acids to be more richly incorporated into our membranes for health improvement. And I'll give you an example, which is the, uh, the Cambridge mega study that came out recently, um, which you guys may recognize as the the one that started telling us that uh, butter is uh, healthy again or, you know, it's not dangerous, we should go ahead and do that. Um, I'm sure you guys recall that being in the news maybe a month or two ago, a couple months ago, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that study, what they did was it was a meta-analysis, which means they uh, gathered the data from a whole bunch of studies, I think it was 70-something studies, and it was uh, 650,000 people roughly. So they gather all that data, they look at it together, And uh, they use that to increase the strength of um, the associations that they find in there. And what they were trying to do is dial down on the individual fatty acids now, not go by classification, but which omega-3, which omega-6, which trans fat, what these individual fatty acids do to cardiovascular disease risk. And what they found were a very uh, significant um, and quite a strong reduction in cardiovascular disease risk with three fatty acids, EPA and DHA, which we all would have expected, and arachidonic acid. That as well, higher levels associated with lower CVD risk. Um, and you could find other studies as well, other areas of health, insulin sensitivity. Diabetes is a new model uh, looking at ARA. It seems that these are the active, uh, they really should be called the essential fats, even though none of them, the EPA, DHA, or ARA is considered technically an essential fatty acid. But these are the biologically essential fatty acids. And this new model is developing as if these are the ones that we want in more abundance Uh, on our cell on our cell membranes so
0: okay okay well let me follow up with that then um one of my understandings as far back as the mid-90s probably was that um omega-3 fats fatty acids epa and dha right from fish oils generally they bump arachidonic acid out of the cell membranes and that's one of the good things they do they're anti-inflammatory because they bump arachidonic acid uh, out of cell membranes. Now, if we hold that to be true, then wouldn't fish oils cause muscle atrophy? If we need arachidonic acid for muscle growth, like the study that I mentioned earlier and some of your work, I know there's some in vitro work too, right? Dose response, actually, where they the more arachidonic acid they put in the dish, the, the more muscle cell growth there was. So- wouldn't fish oils cause atrophy?
3: Well, I don't want to say that they would cause atrophy. The thing about ARA is it really likes to be stored in your uh, muscle cells. So, um, yes, they are competitive. Yes, EPA can force some uh, ARA off the uh, cell membrane, but ARA still likes to be there. So it's not a, a situation where you're going to take some fish oil and you're going to completely eliminate ARA. Okay. Yes, that is very astute that ARA is the um, fatty acid that we're looking at for anabolism and— Exactly that. If, you're, are, if you have less ARA when you train, this is how the anabolic response with the fatty acids comes. You damage your muscles during exercise. An enzyme comes in immediately and starts cleaving off fatty acids and releasing them. And it's not specific for ARA. You get EPA, DHA, ARA. You get a bunch of fatty acids liberated. ARA is the anabolic one. controls protein synthesis. So the ARA will convert to prostaglandins, which will regulate protein synthesis. And as you put, the more ARA that you have there, the, more, the stronger the anabolic response is going to be. So in theory, and this has never been studied, um, taking a lot of fish oil could reduce or diminish to some extent the anabolic response. Um, so okay. I would like to see some study on that. And again, when you look at EPA, and for years we've been saying, oh, take fish oils for muscle growth, but these are all studies on uh, you know, sedentary people that aren't trained and fails to take into account this important role of ARA in the anabolic response to resistance training.
0: Right. Yeah, I think it's it's valuable to look at these things like systems, you know, and we everybody based on age and their diet composition and all in genetics, they have different um, enzymatic machinery to turn some of these, like you said, what are biologically the important fatty acids, EPA, DHA, and arachidonic acid, uh, and you know what your body does with those. Uh, differs based on the person and you're right just like with a lot of the protein studies and phil you you we've talked about this before Mm -hmm. they get these guys they're beginners and they make crazy gains um you know and sometimes that's not always the best population. because when you take somebody who hasn't worked out before it's the same thing even with the caffeine work that i've been doing lately is you know you get somebody who's never worked out before and i'm not sure we're pouring these um fuels into necessarily the right machine you know what i mean that population specificity is a big deal. Like who are we looking at? And I think stuff with the fish oils too. Um, one thing I, I liked about that Florida paper was that, that three pound gain or three and a half pound gain or whatever, over eight weeks. Um, that's along the lines of what I would call biological realism. It's not the kind of thing that, you know, all the ridiculous gains in muscle mass, you know, like you might see with some types of anabolic steroids or, or what have you, uh, over a eight or 10 or 12 week period. Um, but these are fatty acids. But that's what made me think about the fish oil thing because uh, arguably you could probably lose three pounds, three or four pounds of muscles, uh, muscle mass over eight weeks, and you wouldn't even notice it. You know what I mean? So the fish oils could be displacing some of the AA, um, arachidonic acid. I know you say ARA, similar. Um, but you get, well, you get my point is we might not even notice that. So, I don't know. Are you familiar with any studies that actually suggest that if if someone starts taking high-dose omega-3 and they did body composition work and they looked at muscle mass?
3: No, and they don't – there's really no study that I could find, and I looked and looked. um, I couldn't find any study where they even gave uh, fish oil to resistance training people, even uh, novices that brought them in and resistance trained them, um, and looked at lean body mass and looked at uh, that kind of thing. It's always like – a whole bunch of studies on dieting. So they reduce calories, give fish oil, and they see what happens to lean body mass. And there's a couple of ones that they've retained a little bit more lean body mass. So their article after article says, oh, fish oil for for lean body mass. But um, that's a very different context. And then there's a few um, where there's like normal uh, caloric intake, but again, no training. They're untrained individuals. Um, So there's a whole lot to how uh, fish oils affect, uh, you know, metabolism and and protein balance in the body. Um, But the key thing is that there's this there's this acute response localized within the muscles to resistance training, um, and that's where it's really key. And if you don't have that element in any part of your study, you're not looking at a relevant population, um, which, like you said, we really uh, should be focusing. In, in our field, we're trying to improve athletic performance, which usually involves somebody that's peaked, plateaued, and wants to get uh, you know a little better. That's the, the bulk of what we're doing here, um, and that should be the bulk of what we're studying.
0: Right. You know, um, I think a lot of listeners may not even realize you, the fatty acid composition, like the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio in, a, in muscle tissue, changes from training alone. I mean, and that's a good example of why you got to look at the right population with this sort of thing, you know, because the training yep. changes you know, on a pretty fundamental level.
3: Phil? Yeah, and with regards to arachidonic – I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Okay. regards to arachidonic acid, studies have shown that declines with uh, with training. So that's another thing that – for years, I have – and I'd love to see this really studied, but I have put it where I believe that that's one of the key things in the plateau effect is that you start to lower your ARA levels from a regular training. You're not replacing them enough. You're not supplementing ARA directly. Because um, uh, one of the first things you see when you, people go on ARA is a couple weeks in, they're getting much more amplified DOMs. They're getting a much stronger response to their uh, to their training.
0: So, mm-hmm. so I was just going to ask Phil that um – you're an experienced lifter brother what do you what how do you address uh, the dietary fat thing uh because it's it's a calorie source and i know mm-hmm. you're you're prone when you're bulking to eat stuff like brownies and do what you have to do you know what i mean and you're not obsessing over omega-3 omega-6 and and that kind of thing because you know the calorie source thing has to be factored into all this too you know fats are a nice rich calorie source they're mm-hmm. not just a nutraceutical, but how, what about your athletes and you, when they ask you about fats, what's your practical advice? Basically, I mean, I
2: what I keep constant is the protein and fats. And then what's going to change depending on the goal is the carbohydrate intake. Mm-hmm. You know, if I got somebody going down in weight class, then we're going to, you know, lower the carbohydrate intake. And if we're going up, we're going to raise the carbohydrate intake, whereas our, our fats are going to – and protein most times – are going to stay pretty static unless you're talking about somebody that's getting like, like you, when you're getting, you know, stage lean type of thing. And then we got to start looking at total calorie intake and that's going to start including more. You're you're probably going to reach a point where we're cutting some fats down too. Um, Right. Yeah. And then, then there's more of a, now we need to really make sure we're getting our EPA and DHA and such like that. in um, because we're, we're limited in our, our, our total intake uh, of the fatty acids. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, other than that, I, I'm a big fan of you know getting your EPA DHA. Um, I'm not going to lie; I haven't uh, really looked into the other, yeah, but the AA uh, too much. Um, I just haven't given it the time yet.
0: I don't think a lot of people have problem, yeah. which is why you know Bill's message I think it could be important here, right? I mean that yeah. other you don't really think about it. I mean, even myself, I'm like, well, you know, we eat so many omega six fats, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Um, having studied muscle physiology I'm familiar not all of that's going to become a arachidonic acid but I didn't realize yep. it was such a you know a tiny amount and like I said there are some very key enzymes and I am not going to bore listeners with it but they go down with aging alcohol intake lots of other things they go up and down and what your fatty acid system does with that fat precursor really depends on a couple of different things you know what I mean yeah. so it's not that simple like like Bill said eat you know eat this and get that as far as mm-hmm. those biologically important fats so
3: and the enzymes are are largely shared so uh, some of the enzymes that produce EPA DHA also produce ARA through you know different substrates so Um, that's uh, as those enzymes go down with age, they also would affect uh,
0: the other side, right? And I appreciate, I know you're biting your tongue like I am, Bill, about (laughs) because you want to start giving examples, and you know there's no way I'm going to start doing that right now. But, um, I want to switch gears real quick before we end and ask you quickly. In fact, we may ask you to be back on the show if you can get free about the anabolic steroid issue itself, because I think there's so much misinformation about anabolic steroids. But if we could switch gears real quick, um, you kind of touched on the creation of the book, but maybe if you could just revisit just very quickly, um, what pushed you to the extent of actually publishing that and spreading that? I mean, did you, was it just personal fascination? Were you just curious uh, or or were you disgusted by the lack of information out there? Or why did you do it and why do you continue to to do that?
3: Yeah, I don't want to say I was disgusted because I was, I was largely impressed by some of the other books, you know, the Walled Anabolic Review. Dan Duchesne's book, even though it wasn't very big and very technical, it was just a, you know, a real eye-opener. Um, for me, it was more of I saw an opportunity to expand on what was there. Um, you know, I, I believe the other books before me didn't bring it to a technical level that really helped you understand why certain compounds acted this way in the body or you know, why you might want to choose this one over that one. Um, so I just felt like I had something to contribute Um, And I wanted to put it together. And from there, I just didn't know what would happen. I figured I'd put it together, see if I could get it published, uh, you know, whatever. It was just more of a, you know, something I had to do to just see if I could pull it together and, I don't know. Yeah, make it happen. There and got it published.
0: Okay. Now, I know this is going to differ hugely by goals, and brace yourselves, both you guys, but Mm -hmm. the question is, in fact, I'll bounce this off of Phil first. Is there an anabolic steroid that is particularly fascinating to you, just academically? Jeez. Um, I, I think,
2: honestly, if I were to say that, I mean, I think the first one that anybody would come to, and it's pretty evident why, it would be uh, just, just regular old, I, not saying that it's just regular new, but testosterone. Yeah, estrogen. I mean, mm-hmm. when you talk to anybody, it's the basis of pretty much everything. Um, so, I mean, I, I'd say that's probably the most fascinating one.
0: Okay, in yep. my mind, you know, I've I've actually always been fascinated by uh, stenozolol by Winstrol. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a kind of thing that in all of my physiology books, it does not talk about. Obviously, these books are going to talk about an anabolic index, you know, versus androgenic, and this and that. And there's lots mm-hmm. of ways to look at these sorts of things, and I've I've looked before, uh, but nothing, of course, cosmetic. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's what's fascinating. We can learn from bodybuilders a lot because you know, uh, learned bodybuilders. I mean, I've talked to guys who they wouldn't even think about competing, uh, unless they were using plenty of wind straw, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so I, that's always fascinated me, but I really want to hear from Bill. What about you? I mean, I know these are vastly different things with vastly different purposes and uses. Uh, but is there something that fascinates you?
3: You know, so much about the the topic generally fascinates me. I think that's why I've uh, taken an interest in it and maintained an interest in it uh, for so long. Um, but if I had to like try to dial it down, I'd say the research compounds are really interesting, mainly because there's such limited data on them. Um, we may have some you know some basic rat studies or some in vitro stuff. Um, particularly, really strong compounds. All of, you know, like that actually was uh, introduced for a short time. trianolone. These analogs are uh, 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 trenbolone are so potent, um, and also uh, you know liver toxic and uh, and things like that. So I, I take an interest uh, in in those really obscure compounds. I yeah, think.
0: I'm not even familiar. You said they're trenbolone analogs.
3: Yeah, it's a methylated trenbolone, and then a dimethylated trenbolone, which makes it even more potent. A dimethyl uh, tri- uh, trenbolone or dimethyl trianolone is, uh, yeah, it's a, it may be one of the most potent uh, anabolic steroids that was ever developed in the in the research lab. Just exceedingly potent in like you know microgram quantities. Wow, you don't even have a milligram of that stuff yeah. to, uh, to feel a very strong effect. In fact, uh, methyl trianolone. Um, that was the most liver toxic steroid that was ever uh, studied in humans. Um, they had that; uh, they were playing with it for a short period of time and then pulled it off the market. And I think it was very liver toxic in uh, doses below one milligram per day. So, right. Uh,
0: so my early—I er- was just going to say—so my early understanding was always that you know when you methylate a steroid, you know, it helps make it orally active, so it doesn't get destroyed by the liver and first pass metabolism and all that. And you're saying so with multiple methyl groups, it's increasingly t- liver toxic. Is that right?
3: Yeah, well, what it does, is, and we don't understand the liver toxicity 100%, but it seems when you put the, uh, in, it depends on where you put the, the methyl group as well, but um, in this particular case, I'm pretty sure it's a 7 and 17, it, it all it makes the steroid even more resistant to metabolism. <laughs> so it stays active in the blood for a longer time. It has a longer half-life. It's more likely to uh, to hit its target. So,
0: I think it's one of the great ironies, um, and maybe my understanding of this is even too basic, but... It's one of the great ironies that people are so shocked and offended by uh, uh, syringes, you know, and injectables where because of the fact that, you know, it's generally the orals that were methylated. I mean, in general, those would be more hepatotoxic uh, than the injectables. Uh, You know what I mean? And and people have this backwards notion of how scary the injectable is when, you know, the pill that their buddy's popping that looks more Mm -hmm. benign is actually much harsher on their bodies, you know.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I've uh, long been advocating um, if you want to reduce the health impact of anabolic steroid, we'll call it misuse or abuse, you're not using it under medical uh, supervision, Um, you want to use a handful of injectables, you know, testosterone, nandrolone, uh, boldenone, uh, Yeah, Compounds like these, uh, they have low or no real appreciable uh, toxicity. They're lower cardiovascular disease uh, risk in terms of the, the way they affect your lipids and what have you. Um, that's much harsher on the oral side. So if you could limit yourself to like four compounds like that, you could drastically not eliminate, but you could drastically reduce the, the the risk that you're that you're putting yourself under. So absolutely, yeah. But then on the other side of it is that the market has shifted so much over the years. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager, it was an abundance of American Western pharmaceutical products, and you had to worry about the counterfeits. Now, the market is almost entirely underground products, counterfeit products. It's very hard to find true Western pharmaceuticals. And the big problem with that is many, a good portion of the um, injectable solutions are contaminated with bacteria. So, there, and that's the, the irony of this whole thing now. It's like if you want to try to go the healthier route and stick with these injectables, um, it's you're dirtier. It's a lot of risk to an infection.
0: Yeah. Mm hmm yeah and and I don't want to downplay the risks in fact, yeah i'm going to I'll be in contact with you, Bill, about maybe coming back on and cover some of the basics about side effects, risks. Obviously, there's lots of transmitted diseases, not just bacteria, from you know people doing very idiotic things with uh, with injectables, you know, and that kind of thing. but um, sure. anyway okay, well uh, let's let's call it there. I'm going to thank you for coming on with us. Yeah. thank you.
3: Thank you for having me really. Good. <clears throat>
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating topic, too, and I know we're trying to cram two things into the show, but since you're well read on both, you know, it's just hard not to ask. So I'm going to try to leave a little room here and um, get some input from Fortress, and we'll see everybody next week. Well, until next week, thanks. We've got Fortress on the line here, and uh, let's start with news. I know you had a little bit of news there. Uh, What's happening in the bodybuilding world?
1: Well, Mr. Olympia, Phil Heath, has now got his own supplement line. So, surprise, surprise. Gifted nutrition, and I don't even want to say it because I don't want to advertise any such thing, but (laughs) here it is. Um you know, I've kind of gone on about this before, and I'll, but I will again. That the, these supplement lines have got to stop. I mean, that the proliferation of this uh, fart powder, as it were, is just getting out of control. And my whole thing is <clears throat> with this specific one is this. Here is a guy that was with MuscleTech for a, a long time. Um, you know, claiming how it was indispensable for his. Mr. Olympia wins and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> right? Um, well, it, I mean, if it's so indispensable, then he bails and he goes and he hooks up with the, you know, he, this gifted nutrition thing, of course, because Phil Heath is known as the gift, oh brother, and uh, and now he has this whole thing going on, and it's just it's funny that he when his the team on his website features out of the five people shown i think only one of them has anything to do with nutrition i think the other three the other three guys are all like marketing guys um anyway fantastic yeah it's just uh i'm i'm just so sick and tired of this kind of crap like um you know again because he's you know because you and me lonnie we, we were these these teenagers at one point you know um wanting so badly to believe you know that you go and you lay down tons of money for this stuff that you know is 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 marginally beneficial at best Mm -hmm. you know i mean there's of course there's no mention whatsoever that you know the gift mr field heath uh uses anything beyond gifted nutrition to obtain his (laughs) mr olympia physique you know i mean the, the the First splash page on his gifted nutrition website shows him, you know, holding up his Mr. Olympia medallions, you know, all, you know, all ripped and gigantic. I mean, again, where's the accountability for any of this? For for him to feel even remotely to fool himself into feeling good about this, that somehow the young people that are looking at this are going to know the full story, you know, without him stating it. You know, the implication and all the implications that he's you know that he arrived at that i mean first first of all this is a new company anyway so gifted nutrition's you know mission statement you know um formed by the the gift phil heath and his a team of nutrition and fitness industry specialists yeah you know was gifted nutrition was born out of a simple philosophy results matter i mean only the highest quality natural ingredients i mean it's the same bullshit for every supplement company that's come out in the last 20 years nobody gives a
0: shit well, well you know, Rob, it, it hasn't really changed. Uh well, you know what? It has changed in one way. I think in the days of the Weeder Empire, it always came back to weeder products made me the man I am today. You know, and in recent years it's become more in the I generation kind of thing, it's become more about me. It's amazing how many people are their own product. You know, they're so um I don't know, I mean you could call it egotistical. But, you know, the gift, it's all about him, you know, uh, and it's not just the professional bodybuilders, Mr. Olympias. Everybody seems to want to brand themselves, you know, to put their name in their company title, to brand themselves. And maybe there's marketing value to it. But in the I think back in the days of the Weider era, um, a lot of the guys who tried to market their own stuff were sort of relegated to a little four inch ad in the back of the magazine. You know, like Mr. Olympia Larry Scott has his own whatever. You know, seaweed protein, whatever. Uh, and nobody paid much attention. But now I think that's the trend. You know, is that as soon as they can break away and make themselves somehow the product, um, you know, their their ego just makes draws them to that. I don't know, and they become. Yeah, know,
1: it's true. I mean, I, I I think he has his own line la- line of sneakers either um, as well, but. I don't know. I, again, I'm just I'm just tired of this stuff, you know. And again, I mean, the whole you know, and he was such a proponent of muscle tech and how that was so important. And then he was you know bailed on that, whether he was fired or let go, who, or chose to leave. Who knows? But
0: no, it's a good point. He grabbed the brass ring himself. But how how his opinion? Yeah, everything well, was exactly. so special about muscle tech, so amazing and special and unique and couldn't be imitated. And now. It is being, uh, <laughs> you know, he's taken exactly the opposite stance in a lot of ways, it seems like.
1: You know, I mean, it's, a, you know, when he goes on about how, you know, how this is going to, you know, impact so hard and all this. I mean, you look at his testosterone booster, you know, 60 bucks, you know, for a Ooh. bottle of this stuff. And, you know, it proprietary bent blend. I mean, see if anybody out here recognizes any of these ingredients. Horny goat weed. Wow. There's a there's a new one. That's new. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Salt pimento, wow! Alley root extract, wild yam root extract, sarsaparilla root extract. Oh espr- my
0: lord, this stuff uh, is like I mean, twenty years old. Some of this stuff.
1: Well, the, the, you know, extract and boron, amino acid. I mean, this this is all like, oh my god, it's just the same shit over and over again. You yeah. know, um, you know, ultimate ISO whey I mean, it's whey protein. Yup. You know what I mean, like. Here he is, 52 bucks for a bucket of this stuff. I mean, you know, this, this the same crap that's been sold now for 20 years. You know what I mean? Like, like what's different about it, Phil?
0: What's different about it? Phil? You know, Rob, some people may say that, oh, yeah, don't start the old fart thing, guys, you know. Um, uh, but I, I think it does give you perspective. You know, like you said, this stuff is, it's been done and redone, and nobody got huge then, and nobody's getting huge now. The truth is, even if you add... Uh, 10-15% to your testosterone levels If you're within the normal biological range For testosterone You're really not going to see anything happen there You know, uh, when people consider Anabolic steroids will take you off the top of the chart Like five-fold You know, you're not even in sight Of the old biological range anymore Let alone just above it I mean, you're literally like 500% or more You know, and then this is talking about If you're lucky out of that stuff I like what you said, marginal at best um, and for fifty or sixty bucks, God, the bang for the buck is not going to be there. You
1: know. Yeah, I mean they're they're super lean. You know, forty nine ninety nine. Yeah, the ingredients
0: seem rehashed.
1: Well, it's it just the, you the know, technique, it reeks the marketing, all,
0: it, right? It all seems kind of the same. It
1: reeks of the, the you know the, the same tactics that have been used for ever now. You know, the, the the pictures of him in a lab coat, you know, looking at some you know <laughs> right. right ingredient list, you know, with a hairnet on. Um, it's just it's just so old you know and and again i mean he you know he's going to convince himself that you know that that it's doing something but all it's doing is taking lots of money out of very young people's mostly young males out of their pockets for stuff that's not going to do a damn thing that any of this other crap hasn't done for 20 years yeah. it's the same thing and his proprietary blends you know a little bit less of this, a little more of that, of the same thing that's been used for, you know, 20 years, more, mm-hmm. certainly a lot more in the case of some of these th- things. So I don't know. Um, yeah, it's you know, fun. Like you know what? It's
0: fun to, sh- to see the visuals. It used to be just about or mostly about the athlete. And like you said, there's that unspoken thing that, you know, this guy is 290 pounds with no body fat. And it's the unspoken assumption that his product line made him that, even though he just switched from a different product line, I mean, are they both that special? but more than that, the visual is often now the science too, and the most even the most uneducated person I'm not talking about Phil Heath, but you know everybody throws on the lab coat, so they're they're trying to get like the best of both worlds and it was always funny to me when they try to do it simultaneously, yeah, you get the bodybuilder or the booth babe and they've got dioderm on and everything and they're posing, and they have nothing but, the uh, you know, swim trunks, <laughs> posing trunks on under a lab coat, and they're actually trying to be both, you know, they're trying to play both the the physique assumption and abuse the science at the same time, and it's like, do you think that there's scientists around, you walk on any university campus like that, and you think you're not going to be laughed off campus, that's, it's so absurd, but like you said, there's always the new batch of 16-year-old guys, you know, so...
1: Yeah, just, you know, and then you look at, like, but even the ramifications as far as, like, because, cause, you know, a lot of people, are you know, have guessed for the last, you know, how many years that, you know, Muscle Tech has essentially owned the Mr. Olympia title, you know, with its athletes winning it. So, you know, you, you got to think, how is that going to affect this as well? I mean, will it affect it at all? I don't know. But, you know, I mean, for so many reasons, the sport of bodybuilding has suffered so, so many blows from you know from this segment of society that have, it just doesn't have a whole lot of you know um integrity and this kind of just feeds right into it to me you know because um, again who, who how that's going to affect the mr olympia results i don't know but it's just it's just gotten so old and so you know just just dusty and moldy
0: <laughs> the marketing <laughs> approach must work on some level i mean like i said there's always the new group of the uninitiated you know Oh no,
1: no and it does it does for without question it does you know i mean all the hype does work to a certain degree but i mean again it's just it's just kind of embarrassing that's all and you know I what just, too i think the average and guy, these guys have these guys have nothing else to, it, it's like they it's like there's nothing else available to them well oh, well, start a supplement line.
0: You know what I mean? Yes, it's the default.
1: Ronnie Coleman, Coleman, his supplement line. Jay Cutler, his supplement line. Like, I mean, it just goes on and on. Supplement line, supplement line, supplement line. supplement. It's It's like, well, we're not real athletes, and we can't actually get endorsement deals with anybody who's beyond just freaking fart powder. So, well, let's just start our own fart powder. It's like, is there nothing else? Is there nothing else here? You know?
0: Well, the the drivers, a lot of the drivers behind bodybuilding, I think it would surprise a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, novice guys and gals maybe, but they're not even the bodybuilders. You know, the guys that control the sport, whether it's behind the scenes at the Mr. Olympia or the supplement companies or what have you, um, you know, a lot of these guys, they don't even lift. You know, or they're certainly not bodybuilders in the fat sense that they were – they had a calling at a young age the way Platts used to describe it, you know. And so a lot of these marketing machines, they're tired to you and I. We've just seen it – not just seen it repeated, but repeated again and again and again. And like I said, the guys that are – that you know, like it's like the drunk, drunk judges we've seen or the conversations around the tables, you know, of some of the supplement companies that we've sat at um, – it's not even the bodybuilders, it's not even the guys with the passion for it oftentimes that are even driving it and the consumer yeah. never sees that. They just see the Mr Olympia. You know, guy.
1: Yeah, and you and I have, you know, actually personal experience with that kind of angle that you're talking about about guys who have nothing really to do with the with the with the sport or anything except to of rape of get... it,
0: right? It, literally. I mean, except to take advantage of it, and make money out of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, just kind of going back, you know, you look at he's got four products so far: Super Lean, effective fat burning supplement, Yawn, Accelerate <laughs> pre workout <laughs> formula, Yawn, IsoWay, fucking triple fucking Yawn, you know, testosterone booster. Like, like a guy like that would even care about something like you like, you know, he, the, the guy's on bucket loads of stuff and. Oh, and this is another thing I wanted to say. So he posted, so somebody posts a video of him, um, you know, training his legs at, uh, Bev Francis' gym there. Um, but, you know, has become kind of infamous over the last decade or so. And here he is in this video talking about, now, a lot of people know that Phil Heath, um, grows into the Mr. Olympia competition, you know, a la Kevin Larone kind of a thing. okay. Mm-hmm. Um... By his own admission in the video that I'm referring to, he actually says the same thing, that he grows into a competition. And for people out there who don't know, what that means is he just increases the dosages. Right. You know. And maybe Very likely, his, you know, yeah. And his consistency going to the gym. You know, and then he spouts off about, you know, well, I'm not going to be setting any records today because I've been on the road for a few hours. Big frickin' deal. I mean, you know, I drove for several hours to come down to visit you a couple years ago, and we busted our ass in the gym. You know what I mean? Yeah. Second of all, so here he is, and I think he's he's 10 weeks away from the Mr. Olympia or something like that, and he grows into the Mr. Olympia. Okay, so for all you out there who need me to do this, let let me explain what that means. It means, yes, he increases his dosages as he's getting closer to the competition. So essentially 10 weeks out, this guy should probably be on more stuff than he is pretty much any other time during the year. Okay, so if there's any, you know, and contrary to the old belief that guys get weaker before competition, it's a kind of a new phenomenon in the last 20, 25 years that a lot, a lot of these guys get way stronger before competition competition um, because of the they're using the most stuff that they'll ever use right before competition. You know, and then he says some spouts spouts something in the video like, "Got to get these legs growing." Okay, indicating here I go to workout, gotta get the legs growing. 10 weeks before the Olympia, I grow before I grow into a show. So you're thinking 10 weeks out before Mr. Olympia, gotta get the legs growing. Okay, so he's gonna be, you know, busting ass. You should see this workout. I mean, it's like the most boring ass thing you've ever seen in your life. I mean, he's wearing all brand new, you know, workout clothes, you know, you know, with shoes and everything else. It doesn't look like I've seen a, you know, a grime of dirt yet in its life. You know, he's probably not even mildly perspiring during the whole workout. You know, he's not doing anything. He's not doing like a three or four plate squat even. He's He's not even squatting. He's not doing anything. It's like, this is what's going to get the legs growing, Mr. Olympia, 10 weeks before you're defending title? You know, your Rod, title. if I
0: can add, the average competitor, the hungry regional or national competitor a lot of times, um, they're probably at their biggest in the off season, And if they're 10 weeks out, even 16 weeks out, um, for me it was 20. Uh, it was more or less a lose weight. Process, You know what I mean? Like, how do you gain mass while you lose fat mass, you know, gaining muscle and losing fat? That's like saying I'm going to be in a calorie surplus and a calorie deficit at the same time. And so what you're saying about, you know, the um, the commonality of drug escalation being the reason for that, I mean, biologically, what would what else would be the explanation? How can you be in a calorie surplus and a calorie deficit? Or how can you be in a calorie surplus while you're dieting for a show? You know what I mean? How and can you be a, growing while you get great, ready for a show?
1: I don't know. And that's a great point. No, that's a great point. I mean, the the concept of this guy who is at the, the you know this you know so called pinnacle of the sport, and he's growing into a show like you say a, a a competition that you know judges a great deal on both body you know muscular mass and size and leanness two things that we've discussed on the show so often that are so run so opposed to each other Mm -hmm. and he's climbing to the pinnacle of the sport to defend his title doing that even if it was a case of the guy just basically regaining what he already had that's still embarrassing because it still implies that he doesn't give a crap enough to try and make himself better than he was the year before because he's merely reacquiring what he's already built yeah. So so it's like, okay, so are you improving your physique or is it just a question of raising the dosages to such a degree that you reacquire what you've already had before
0: and then it's just fine-tuning your diet to make sure you come out of shape? <laughs> you know, Rob, I bet the explanation would be, and again, I know nothing about uh, Phil Heath really, uh, but the explanation would be that he's gifted. He's just—it's well, you know, all the gift. It's all the genetic gift. It seems to be the main thing, whether it's a powerlifter or a bodybuilder. Maybe worse with the bodybuilders, you know. That I'm so gifted. This is just who I am, you know. And um, and I think a lot of them believe it themselves. You know, they've been on uh, heavy cycles back to back for so long. I think maybe they believe it themselves. They haven't. Well, there's I, I been don't lots know. of
1: spe- you know talk about that whole thing where when you're on. A lot of these guys, really, you know, a lot of people who are on period, not these guys, but any people who are on period, you start, it it drives you into such a mania of, you know, ego that you actually start believing that you start, over time, you increasingly, increasingly minimize the impact that drugs are having and that, okay, well, you know, it's it's yeah, I'm on this stuff, but you know, it's only minimal what it's it's doing, you know what I mean? It's mostly me. Yeah, it's 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 definitely helping maybe, you know, maybe five
0: or ten percent. Right. Right kind of kind of a thing. You know what I mean? It's just So let's use that let's use those numbers. Let's say it is ten percent. We'll even take the upper end of that. Then so that means twenty seven pounds of your two hundred and seventy are from the meds, you know? Uh no. You know, more like 100 pounds, you know, are because of the, you know, the drug itself. But well, exactly. I like and, your and, point you know, because one of the things you and I have seen over the years is the, um. yeah, not just the mania. That's a really good point. I mean, let's face it. If you look at the scientific literature, low testosterone causes depression. So it would stand a reason. It doesn't prove, but it suggests that really high testosterone would cause the opposite of depression or the mania you're talking about. And I mean, you and I have talked to some long time users, legendary guys, and their thinking is not right <laughs> it's it's I think there's a slow cumulative effect, and for all the people who try to critique anabolic steroids and make them sound bad, if they really wanted to uh you know emphasize their point, I think they'd they'd point to the changes in mental status you know over a decade's worth of heavy, heavy use, you know. Well,
1: it, yeah, it definitely wreaks havoc with people in, in to different degrees and different ways. But the more I think about it, the more I think about these testosterone booster products as being insulting to the consumer to have his name on the bottle, you know what I mean? And to have it representing him, a guy who anybody who knows anything about the sport knows that, you know a t- you know, a natural testosterone booster— has absolutely nothing to do with every photo he uses of himself. <laughs> you know, or the, or the very fact that we're aware of his name at all has nothing to do with the fact that he ever, ever achieved any of that with a natural testosterone booster.
0: Well, that's true of any celebrity endorsement. You know, I was just doing a thing with some of the guys I know um – they work with the uh, american fitness academy and we are doing a red flags just like a little educational animated thing and it's one of the red flags it doesn't prove something is fraudulent but it strongly suggests it is celebrity endorsement because more often than not the celebrity whether it's michael jordan or phil heath you know I mean, if you take a really high-end um athlete you know legendary guy rarely Do they understand anything about the product? I mean, just like Michael Jordan isn't a podiatrist, you know, and he can't – or a kinesiologist, and he hasn't done anything with the shoes. Um, Same thing with Phil Heath. The only relationship they even have with the product, whether it's shoes or a supplement, is I guess they could argue that they've taken it before. But even that doesn't really say anything about whether it improved their effectiveness, you know, in their sport, you know. So celebrity endorsements are one of those red flags too. Yeah,
1: because I mean, do do you really think that Mr. Phil Heath, Mr. Olympia, who's growing into the Mr. Olympia, do you really think that in all the things that he has to think about at this stage of the game, he's thinking about taking you know at points in the day, right? (laughs) He's he's worried about taking his IsoWay protein powder and his testosterone booster. Yeah, he's concerned about popping some pills from his you know a bottle of natural testosterone booster.
0: You know, I mean, you know, I'm going to throw out a disclaimer before anybody before anybody emails me and says, oh, Rob doesn't really know that stuff. You know what? These are probability arguments just to make a disclaimer. And, you know, I'm not pointing at Phil Heath directly, except like for you to if he's putting his name on something, I should sure hope he's got some, you know, uh, direct evidence or involvement uh, in that. But like you said, the the history of the whole thing just does not suggest that.
1: Yeah, you know, we've we've been there, you know, we've we've seen all this stuff. And you know, for anybody who wants to write and say <clears throat> that, you know, haters are gonna hate you know, and send letters that, you know, Fortress is an ass. Well you know what? Go ahead. But you know what, go and spend your freaking several hundred bucks on the gifted nutrition, you come back to me and say if it was worth it. Yeah. You know, t- tell me if it was worth anything more than buying a bunch of freaking eggs. And uh, I mean, for God's sakes, I think I think it's just that you know, I, my my tolerance for this stuff is completely just gone. Gone. Yeah, it's not even I, I'm reduced. Just, I'm, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> I'm just, and I think you know, I mean, it's just completely and utterly dissolved. I have no patience anymore for this stuff. I, I'm just tired of it. I'm just tired of it. So our reigning Mister Olympia, you know, does the same thing that everybody else does. You know, comes up with fart powder because there's nothing else to do. I mean, he has these gifted gifted shoes or something i don't know if that's actually a real thing or if he's and if it is great but i mean how many how many of pairs of those are being sold yeah well is, when, it, when you're you done know, with your
0: competitive career i suppose you gotta you gotta take some kind of direction you know and yeah. it, like you said the default it's just the default is let's start selling dietary supplements you know when there's if you could just break out of the box there's probably a million things you could do at the end of your competitive career just
1: you know just rebranding the same ingredients time and time again you know new label on the same old bottles same price margins you know same broken dreams (laughs) god you are salty this week (laughs) well no but i'm just i'm just tired of this stuff and like i say if people say well he's pissed off because you know he got jammed before with this stuff you know what damn right i have just like all of us if anybody has you know, come up in this thing. Anybody has been ripped off by this stuff. Well, Rob, no, there's I no I way prefer-
0: to make money. We talk about the guys who make the money and drive the industry. Uh, there's really no way to make a lot of money by saying eat buckets of eggs and steak, and you know, and and train heavy and pound the calories. You know what I mean? These are um, these are messages that aren't exotic enough for the young, fascinated guy who is vulnerable, like we talked about last week. And like you just said a few minutes ago, that who wants to believe, you know, and there's always that vague connection with anabolics, you know, like supplements are anabolic steroids, junior kind of thing, you know, and uh, yeah, it's just, uh, there's not really money to be made. uh, Hence our public radio style format, even on this show, you know, when we're just saying eat tons of calories, you know, calories are one of the most anabolic things you can do, certainly compared to a $60 bottle of some herbal testosterone booster, you know. So, all right, man. Well, we are out of time. We got a long episode this, this week, though. But All right, let's cut it and, there. And
1: if, anybody, and if anybody wants to send a hate mail to me, go ahead, because it'll be funny to read it. <laughs> You're a bold man, Fortress.
0: Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the